Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Victoria Stapleton, Director of School and Library Marketing at Little Brown Books for Young Readers. We're pleased today to welcome Emily Lloyd-Jones, who is, in fact, our first repeat guest. We're excited that she's joining us today for a conversation, as I'm afraid our first conversation with her, while delightful, was rather experimental. We were still learning how to do some podcasts, and she was very generous with her time and patience. She has a new book on our list. It is called The Hearts We Sold. She's been known for her sci-fi hijinks duology, Deceptive and Elusive, and she's gone in a little bit different direction with this. It involves sci-fi, but also horror and psychological, uh, contemporary angst and teens, and, and a really interesting concept and setting that I think is fresh and different in what we're seeing in teen literature today. So welcome, Emily. Thank you for having me. Uh, and thank you for being patient, because I will tell you, gentle listeners, we've already had some technical difficulties, and it's been it's been super fun. But we're going to do this, and it's going to be awesome. I am a fellow Oregonian, and I love all books that are set in Oregon. As much as horror disturbs me, I'm super intrigued by what you've done with this book. I was really struck by how you played with the idea of making and breaking connections among people. I mean, teen years are those years where you're doing that independently. Can you tell us a little bit about what this book is about in terms of making and breaking those connections and the situations your characters, especially Dee Moreno, find herself in? I think one of the things that really draws me to writing young adult fiction is the element of transition mm-hmm. because like you mentioned it is that verge of adulthood when teens are defining themselves rather than being defined it's also the time when they begin to break from their families and find their own communities and friends and for most teens that's getting a job going to college traveling or simply finding a new social circle for d moreno my main character i wanted her to explore what it meant when one's blood ties weren't necessarily the healthiest She comes from an abusive situation, so she's very disconnected at the beginning of the novel. She's closest to her roommate, who barely knows anything about her. She's cut herself off in the name of self-protection, and while that's understandable, it's also really sad. Mm -hmm. So a big part of this story for me was de-forging her own ties and finding her own family. There's a shared connection between her and all of the other teens in this novel, because all of them have sold their hearts for something. They share a situation, if not a similar background. All of them made a hard decision, and now they have to rely on each other to survive the consequences. So basically, selling their hearts is the catalyst for finding a new family, which I really liked that. I love how you discuss this, because I think that really is that idea of family of origin versus family of choice, what our parents believe versus what we choose to believe, um, what is important for setting our own priorities. That is a hallmark of good YA fiction, and you've presented a particularly acute example of this. I also like what you're talking about with consequences. We're very casual in some ways when you're like, I'd give my eye teeth or my firstborn child or my right arm for something that may seem important to us in a moment, but turns out to be rather trivial. And in YA literature, I don't know that we always see consequences. What was important to you about the consequences that you were building in here? I really wanted to explore what it meant to want something so badly, it would cost you a part of yourself. One of my favorite scenes in the book is Dee talking to a girl who sold a piece of herself to keep her parents together, because in the moment, that's what she thought she wanted. She didn't want her parents to divorce, and so she found a demon, 
sold her arm, and voila, the demon found a loophole in her grandfather's will that her parents could never divorce if they wanted to keep their million-dollar inheritance. The problem is, the parents still hate each other. So the girl's having to deal with that. And there was one line, I'm trying to remember exactly how I put it, where it was, the problem with making a deal is you get exactly what you ask for. In some of the characters' cases, it is kind of monkey paw-ish, and you get what you ask for, but it's really not what you wanted. And in some cases, you do end up getting what you want and what you asked for. It just depends on the person and how well they know themselves. So it's sort of that idea, we think perhaps we want the safety of the known versus the unsafety of the unknown or experimentation. Mm-hmm. In that, in the case of that girl, what she really wants is a safe emotional harbor and a safe emotional family, and she thinks it's by physical proximity. Turns out not so much. In Dee's case, she's coming at it a little bit from the opposite direction. Her known situation is so awful, she'd give anything to escape into something she has no idea about. Is that fair to say? Definitely. And I like contrasting those different characters. For example, the love interest, James, is another one of the characters that, like her, wanted to escape into the unknown. And I think that was, you know, a big part of their bonding was people who are unsafe in their current situations. So they feel they have no other option to just get out and forge their own families. That connects also to your idea about Dee being very alone. She's fled into the unknown and she sold off her heart to escape her known situation. But she doesn't have any knowledge to negotiate or navigate her new life or her new circumstances. That's really interesting to me that she's without a net in almost all ways. And and how does she make any subsequent choices? Hmm. I think it mirrors a lot of teens' real situations. Because, I mean, most of us, when we are 18 and we're going out into the real world, I mean, most of us are going out without, usually we have some net, but it's a lot of finding our own ways. And I think for her, I mean, obviously it's more literal going into the unknown, but I really just like comparing that with the average teen going to college or traveling or just, you know, getting a job. Or having to move, change schools, exactly. that sort of thing. So we've talked a little bit about the teens, but I'm equally fascinated by the demons uh, because they're up to something. They're making their own connections and they have their own priorities. How much thought did you give to them and their purposes and aims. I spent far too many hours considering exactly what brought these demons to the choices they've made because the demon, or as he likes to call himself, the daemon mm-hmm. of the novel, he is one of my favorite characters. He's such an enigma and I spent a lot of time thinking about his background and exactly what brought him to this because I won't spoil anything, but... The other demons are not taking hearts the way he is, and there is a reason for that. Mm -hmm. And his taking of the hearts binds him to these young adults, and I think that gives him a greater connection to Earth and its people than the other demons, and he sort of unwillingly finds himself surrounded by these teens, sort of like, I like to think of him kind of as the unwilling babysitter of all these teenagers running around and just like, how did I find myself in this situation? What do you think is his heart's desire? His heart's desire, I would say, it's the same as the girls where he wants to continue his own safety. He wants to keep things the way they are. And he is working towards keeping that goal going, basically. I find that fascinating because we usually think about demons or daemons as something that's unruly or without purpose. 
But really, in a way, Dee and her friends are relating to this daemon. They're sort of ships passing in the night or speaking to cross purposes and then slowly tuning into each other. Does that... I would definitely say it's so. Yeah, I, and I think it's an interesting way of communication and, and accommodation that actually makes something new, and that is an interesting metaphor for life. What... And I think this comes up in your symbolism of, uh, of something. When we first see that daemon, he's knitting. What's with the knitting? Okay, I really wish I could say there was something deeply symbolic about people being knitted together and yarn and all this, but honestly, I just really wanted the mental image of this impeccably dressed demon in a thousands of dollar suit sitting on a park bench knitting really badly. I love the idea of a demon having to look up YouTube tutorials to figure out how to knit a heart because he desperately needs to make one. Well, I like his first line of, I'm purling. Yes. (laughs) As someone who struggled with learning to knit in her early teens, I very much appreciated that joke. I thought of it more sort of, it's a symbolism of, or could be read as a symbolism for his trying to weave the story or start the story, knit the story of what was going on. And I, I found that fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about, because I know knitted hearts are part of this book. And there is the selling of the hearts. I mean, we think about hearts as the most intimate part of our emotional selves. Uh, you know, there's always heart versus mind, etc. Can you talk a little bit about why selling the heart? Well, when I was brainstorming this novel, I always knew the main characters were going to give up their hearts. Like you said, hearts are supposedly the most valuable part of a person. You always hear that someone is the heart of a group, or they have a big heart, or they're someone's sweetheart. It's kind of funny if you think about it, because there are other organs that are just as vital. Try living without a brain, or stomach, or kidneys. Mm -hmm. But somehow, calling someone your sweet kidney just doesn't have the same romanticism. No, it does not. It does not. (laughs) So I like the idea of these characters losing that part of themselves that is supposedly the seat of all emotion. And that's the only way that D can finally allow herself to feel things. Like many children from dysfunctional households, she's really cut herself off, and she sees her heart as a weakness rather than a strength. When she loses her heart, she actually begins finding the strength to fall in love with someone, to actually feel things, to really find herself. I love that idea because it's sort of... We think of love as romantic, romance, romantic in the very pale sense of a romance novel. And I think almost it's shedding that idea of love to something more transitioning into something more deliberate, more adult, more risky, almost, because it involves all the other parts of her. Is that fair to say? I think so, definitely. A big part of Dee is she's very much in her head a lot of the time. She's very much a brain person, and she doesn't trust a lot of people. And there is a moment in the book when she looks at her love interest and deliberately thinks, I trust this person. And I think that's an even bigger step for her than falling in love. So I think a lot of it is taking place in the rest of her, not just her heart. Speaking of the mind, and I'm going to come back to that point in a moment, but what's interesting to me in thinking about the daemon too is Dee does live in her head. And there was a point in the story as I was empathizing with her or reading along with her in the narrative, I was like, I can see myself, if I were D in this book, my mind would have refused to process what I was looking at. I, I ju- it just would have given up, you know? I would not have any anything to 
to help me navigate what I and process what I was seeing. What is it about her that allows her to see so clearly? Because this is a horror novel, and there is like a lot of otherness. Let's put it that way going on here. What is it about her that allows her to see that horribleness and deal with it? I mean, you've you've clearly pulled on some Lovecraftian elements, particularly, you know, the elder gods and ability to describe or process what the, what's going on with them. What what is it about D that lets her do this? Well, I definitely pulled a lot from the Lovecraft mythos as part of this novel. I mean, it's pretty obvious. Uh, there are creepy monsters. The question is something is magic or science, etc. Mm-hmm. But my favorite thing about Lovecraft is how small humanity seems in the face of his universe. His elder gods are powerful, utterly beyond human comprehension. And those who discover the existence of such creatures are either destroyed by such knowledge or they go mad. And in this book, I really wanted a third option. So when I wrote about Dee, I decided that she would be uniquely equipped to deal with monsters because she's been dealing with them her whole life. Mm. Monsters don't have to be Lovecraftian horrors. They walk among us, invisible but real nonetheless. I liked writing about a character for whom monsters weren't some great cosmic unknowable thing. Sure, it's a shock finding out they literally exist, but for her, they've always been there. She's always been fighting, always been running, always been struggling to survive. Having come from that place, eldritch abominations are simply not as scary to her. Mm -hmm. Monsters come in all shapes and sizes. For her, these ones just have more tentacles. I love this idea because, again, going back to earlier part of our conversation, when we think about what do the daemons want, what do the elder gods want, and, and does it really matter if we understand? Is it important to them that we understand their purposes? And going back to your main daemon, his connection to them, he's also in between worlds, caught into something he up in something he doesn't entirely understand, because I don't know that he entirely understands his commitment to these kids. Yes? I think he definitely doesn't think he cares about them, but he actually does. He is that reluctant babysitter who looks at his charges and goes, oh, they're completely, you know, not worth it. But when he starts to be faced with the possibility of losing them, it definitely becomes a lot more difficult. I also think her idea that she's cut herself off completely from her family and her human situation, I think it's the idea that she's cut herself off so totally from her human connection. She no longer has that framework that prevents her from seeing, but it also allows her to cope in a deeper way, a better way. Yes? I think so. Um, There are definitely a few characters who are so embedded and ingrained in their lives as they know them that it ends up causing a little bit of tragedy because they can't face what's going on in the horror aspects of the world. Again, no spoilers, but it does cause a certain tragedy when one character finds some truths out and ends up panicking a bit. Again, is it, do you really want the answer to that question? I mean, I could tell you the answer to that question, but do you really, be careful what you wish for. Exactly. And that sort of metaphor of confronting horror is moving into adulthood. And the idea of her relationship with James is based on something that is not a fairy tale version of love, but is more an adult version of love. It's almost, I don't know if I want to say this, but almost more ethically based because it is so deliberative. We think about teen love as subjected to hormones because they're full of hormones. But that sort of a counter, her her relationship with James defies that sort of expectation. It's very much more, I don't want to say cold, 
But the element of choice there is is profound. Yeah, I liked writing in contrast to the fairy tale horror elements. Whenever I write fiction that is speculative, which is all of my fiction, basically, (laughs) I try to ground it in as much truth and reality as possible in order to make, you know, everything seem more real. And with their relationship, I wanted to demonstrate how one goes through meeting someone, not trusting them, slowly becoming friends, realizing they trust them, and then taking that further. So I liked the gradual slide of acquaintanceship to actually falling in love with someone. I want to ground that and make it seem as real as possible. Meanwhile, they're, you know, running around fighting monsters. I have my brain going in a thousand different directions right now because I think there is a a really powerful depiction of, at a deeper level, of that move into adulthood that we began talking about with this, of leaving aside safety, leaving aside comforting fairy tales, um, deciding to proceed with one's own relationships in a more deliberate, ethical, intentional fashion that is a hallmark of adulthood, hopefully. Crossing my fingers. And the idea of these transitions... And confronting the unknown, which seems, I guess there are horrible situations in life. If we don't understand them, they can be every bit as frightening as the elder gods until we get a handle or leave aside some comforting fairy tales in order to approach them honestly. I did want to talk a little bit about setting because Oregon, it's true. Of course. (laughs) But is there a, a symbolism? Because I'm thinking about how this story ends and where it ends on a seashore. And we think of that as a, as a place of transition, at least I have always thought of it as a place of transition where the borders are very porous. The sea and the sky, the same color, the land and the ocean sort of merging. Did you think about that in any way, or is it just because the Oregon coast is the best place on earth? It is quite gorgeous, I will admit. Having grown up in Oregon myself, I have great fondness for the Oregon coast and just Oregon in general. There's a reason I said the most of the book in Portland is because I just love that area so much. But right now, I do actually live on the coast. I can hear the ocean from my house if I open up all the windows. And I think, when I think of the ocean, I simultaneously think of someplace beautiful, but also someplace that can be dangerous if you don't respect it. And whenever you're standing on the ocean, you always have to be aware and alert. Otherwise, you could get swept away. And I think part of Dee's journey is just accepting that that's basically life. It's something beautiful, and you can't control it always. And you just sort of have to be aware of everything, but not be completely taken over by the fear of it. And so her sitting on that seashore with a demon, just watching the waves, I felt was a very fitting way to end things. I do love the ending. I do. I love this whole book. And I encourage everyone to read it, uh, honestly, because uh, there are a few books. I'm going to just like be incoherently rapturous for a moment. We'll take a break, listeners, while I flub all this. But um, is there anything in this book of which you, as a writer and thinking about your craft and what you do... Is there anything about this book that gives you a special sense of pride that, yeah, you did that? This was one of those books, I always think of how, was it Hemingway that said, writing is easy, all you have to do is sit at a typewriter, open a vein, and bleed? (laughs) When I think of that quote, I think of this book. It was, in some ways, one of the hardest things I've ever written, because it was complex, it delved a lot into emotional places that I hadn't gone before, there were characters that I loved, and... Some of them do not have very good ends. It was just, 
I think it was the culmination of a lot of writing experiences for me. And I look back on it now and I'm just, I'm really happy that it exists and it's going to be out in the world and people are actually going to get to read this because this is the kind of book I would have wanted when I was a teenager. The story that is scary, but at the same time, ultimately hopeful that there are monsters in the world, but you can overcome them and you can find a family and friends and people that are trustworthy, even in this place where there are monsters. And there are consequences and there are regrets and you do have to be careful for what you wish for, but you might also be pleasantly surprised by that step into the unknown and what you find there after taking that step. Exactly. Now I have to go read this book again, uh, just based on our discussion, because there's so much in there that's really interesting. And I do appreciate that you followed the logic of your story. I mean, yes, some not all ends are good ends, but you, you really went for it here, and I, I super appreciate that. Emily, thank you so much for spending time with us today. I love this book. And I'm so excited to have teens read it and and other readers read it and fall in love with these characters as well. Well, thank you so much for having me. Gentle listeners through the waves, even the elder gods on the other side. This has been the Little Brown School and Library Podcast. I've been Victoria Stapleton, and with me has been Emily Lloyd-Jones, author of The Hearts We Sold, available on shelves at bookstores and libraries, and hopefully the table next to your bed although maybe not read this one in the dark. We'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.